Hopefully, this is a lot like riding a bike. <laughs> in case I happen to fall off the bike, you'll find on the insert in your bulletin an outline for this morning's message. We're going to begin the Advent season. Is that too loud? I sound loud, but all right, you're good? All right. We're going to begin our Advent season by looking at a portion of Scripture from Galatians. Galatians is referred to very frequently as the Declaration of Independence for Christians. In itself, it, it makes this assertion for us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The Galatians were sort of losing their grip on the gospel of grace, and, and Paul's rebuking them in this letter. But yet when we get to this portion of Galatians 4, he doesn't scold them so much as remind them of what God has done for them in Christ to, to call them back. And this morning, as we look at that portion of Scripture, we want to be reminded of that declaration of independence that Christ has come to bring. He said, I came to set the captives free. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So with that, let's stand for the reading of God's Word and turn on the insert, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you by your spirit have put so much in this portion of your word that we can hardly digest it. But we would pray this morning by the ministry of that spirit that we would see Jesus, that you would open to us more and more of your truth through your word and through its proclamation. We pray and ask this because as you have been faithful, so you have promised to be. And we ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So, if all of you were to take out your cell phones that you might have with you, and you were to turn them off and shut them down, and if you have a fancy Apple Watch or something else on, or one of those old analog things, and you were to somehow turn that off, the question is, would we be able to stop time? We might stop measuring time, but we would not stop time. Time marches on. There's only two times in Scripture that I remember that, that God alters, if you would, the flow of time. He does it once for Joshua. Then he does it once in the reign of Hezekiah when Jerusalem is being threatened. So when we think about that, 
and we come to this passage that talks about a time being set, the question that comes to my mind is, who then is the timekeeper of all history? Whose hands are they that literally move the hands of time, or if you would change the digits if I want to go more modern? The question is really posed to us by this text. Who is the timekeeper of all of history? And what, what is coming forth as we look at this time is that in all of history, a time had been set. Before the foundation of the world, on the time chart, if you would, of creation, there was a time that had been set. Had been set for the event that we read about this morning. And so the question is, who set it? Who set that time? Well, once again, the text makes it clear it's the father that set the time. In verse 1, we see the analogy of a, of a child who has an inheritance is to come to him, but that inheritance doesn't come until a time that is set by the Father. And so before the world began, where the Lamb of God was slain before the creation of the world, the time had been set for his coming even before time began. And we start thinking about that. We go back, if you would, to the dawn of creation. And we move forward in time to the advent. What was going on in that interim? What was going on in that time? And I would propose to you that the text tells us clearly that while that was going on, God the Father was setting the stage for God's advent. He was preparing for that for thousands of years. The passage talks about the fullness of time as if those millennia were a pregnant woman and the pregnancy was growing and maturing, that in the fullness of time, something was going to happen at the time that had been set. God the Father was setting the stage. He was doing it in his sovereign providence and care. You might recall in the past several weeks, David has talked to us about the providence of God and how it had been working, particularly in the conquest of God's people and then in the intertestamental period. He talked to us about when the northern kingdom was conquered and the people were dispersed and in what's called the diaspora, where the people of God are scattered literally throughout the Mediterranean basin. And as they go, they take the scriptures of the Old Testament with them. They take the Hebrew Bible, if you would, and they establish, if you would, a prophetic presence in those places. They're literally, if you would, to become preaching points, to become mission churches. And what's taking place as that's happening is that the Greek Empire is expanding throughout the world. And as the Greek Empire is expanding throughout the world, its culture expands. And the Greek language becomes the language of the people. And then about a century before Christ is to come, the Old Testament scriptures are translated into Greek. And so we have the Bible scattered around the Mediterranean basin in both Hebrew and in Greek. It is literally the language of the people that's gone forth. And what we find out as we think about God's providence in doing that, the Apostle Paul and Peter, where did they go? Where did they preach? 
They went to those preaching points, to those synagogues established in the diaspora. That's where Jesus preached. That's where he declared, I have come to set the captives free. In the providence of God, he was preparing that before Christ came. Not only that, but in the same time, the Roman Empire succeeds the Greek Empire, and something happened that hadn't happened before. All the way from Great Britain down to what we know today as Iraq or uh, Iran, there is a sense of peace, what's known as the Pax Romana, so that people can literally travel more safely than they ever traveled before. Now, Rome ruled with an iron hand, but nonetheless, there was a presence of peace and the enforcement of law that permitted the apostles, the disciples, and the early Christians to travel freely throughout that empire. Think of it. They hadn't been able to do that before. But now when the Great Commission comes in Jerusalem, they're able to do it. We have things that are instantaneous today. We have the internet, right? We can zoom around the world with a click of a mouse. It wasn't quite that way back then. But I'm sure that everyone in this uh, room today has traveled on the interstate highway system of our country. You might not know it, but the interstate highway system of our country consists of about 48,000 miles of road. I-35, I-45, they're all part of that network. What you may not know is that in the Roman Empire, so that the Romans could move their legions around their empire, they constructed hard surface roads. And the Roman roads consisted of a network of roads of over 50,000 miles. More paved roads than we have in our interstate highway system. And so, when the apostles and the disciples travel, literally, they're on the information superhighway. The Apostle Paul, missionographers will tell us, traveled about 10,000 miles under the protection of the Pax Romana on the Roman roads, carrying the gospel throughout the Mediterranean basin where it would spread up into Europe, out into the world. And all this God was doing to prepare the world for the coming of Christ and the bringing of the gospel. And what kind of an atmosphere was this happening in? It was happening in an atmosphere of tremendous need. There was pantheistic confusion. People said, well, do I belong to the, the pantheon of Athens or do I celebrate the pantheon of Rome? Am I a Stoic? Am I a Hedonist? Am I an Epicurean? I don't know what I am. And the moral confusion of that day would literally pale the moral confusion of our day. It was into that environment that God would send the Christ. He would send the gospel into that environment. And so he was preparing to begin, if you would, the great drama of redemption here on earth. Where the fall took place, then is the place where the Redeemer would come. You might not think of it this way, but I would encourage you to try. The earth is the center, if you would, of this galactic drama. This is the stage on which it is being acted out and taking place. The Apostle Paul tells us we don't uh, war against flesh and, 
flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the power of evil in heavenly realms. The spiritual conflict is being acted out here and now in this church, in your life, and in my life. And God had prepared the world for that. And he's prepared us for that. And when we begin to think about it on that kind of a scale, we think about it with a little historic reference as to what he did to prepare for the first advent. What do you think he's doing since the resurrection and ascension of Christ in the 2,000 of years since then till now? What do you think he is doing? The only thing that makes sense is that he is preparing the world again for the second advent of Christ. Now, as you survey the events of history and observe what's going on politically, if you would, medically, here and there in the world, remember that the timekeeper is once again preparing the world for the advent of his son, not in humiliation, but in power and in glory. And so, the time was prepared. The time had fully come, and when the time had fully come, what happened? Well, God the Father sent his Son as a person. Verse 4, he sent his Son, born of woman, born under the, wa- under the law, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, came to this world and took to himself a body and was simultaneously fully God and fully man the unique incarnation, the God-man. He had to be that, for only God could pay the price. Only he could give his life to redeem his people. But only he could come as a man so he might identify with us and we with him so he would be one with us. And so the incarnation is incredibly important as we remember what the scriptures say today. He came born of woman, born like us, And born under the law, he fulfilled the law for us. He did not dismiss it, but he kept it. Where Adam broke it, Christ kept it. Where Adam was unrighteous, Christ was completely righteous. So that he could be the perfect sacrifice, the unique and eternal God-man, the sacrifice for sinners like me and like you. And so, having done such a great thing, It is not a surprise to me, it shouldn't be a surprise to you, that God the Father sent the Son with mission. He sent him, if you would, with great purpose. And if we look at verses 5 through 7, we see those purposes very compactly, if you would, outlined for us. He came, if you would, for our liberation. We're back to what Jesus said. I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. No greater love as a man than this, that he laid out his life for his friends. You're my friends. He came to redeem, to liberate, to buy back. We were as much in bondage under sin and death as the Israelites were in bondage under Egypt. But the scriptures declare to us, the soul that sins shall die. And that was our if you would, lot in life. We were sinners and condemned to death. We were under a penalty in a prison from which we, from which we needed freed, and that was his mission. He came as the redeemer to ransom 
You know, we weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without a blemish and defect. That's why he had to come. The Son of God had to come as a human being. Now, not only did he come to redeem us, but he came for our adoption that we, if you would, might receive the adoption of sons, that we might be the children of God. We were without family. We did not belong, if you would, to the family of God in any way, shape, or form until we were liberated to be that. He made us sons. He made us part of the family. He sent the spirit of his son into our heart that we might cry out, Abba, Father even as the prodigal son would cry out to his father. We, the prodigals, would come back, and by the spirit of his son in our hearts, we cry out to our God, our father. Everything our fathers on earth were, he is. The perfect father. We have been brought into his family. Not only do we have him as our father, we have Christ as our elder brother. We are the family of God. You are the children of God by faith in Christ. We're fully adopted. No longer slaves, but children. Children of God. And along with that, he gave us our inheritance. Remember we sang the carol about Emmanuel this morning? I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but it really helps to think of it this way. Our inheritance is God, not silver and gold. Our inheritance is God. When the covenant is first initiated in blood back in Genesis 15, the Lord says to Abraham, I will be your shield and your very great reward. Our reward is God himself. God has caused the spirit of his son to dwell in your heart's can you even begin to grasp that? That the eternal Son of God, by His Spirit, dwells in our hearts, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? God's our inheritance. That's what heaven is going to be. We will be His and He will be ours. That's where our great reward is. For great is your reward in heaven. What is it? Silver, gold, and jewels? No. It's God himself. And that's what the picture of the incarnation is. It's Emmanuel prefigured. It's the down payment of that which is to come. The great inheritance. You notice in these verses, the wonderful picture that we have of the work of the Trinity. It's God the Father who sent God the Son. It's God the Father who sent God the Spirit into our hearts. The work of our salvation is the work of the triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Any doctrine that does not include the triune God in its doctrine of salvation is false doctrine. The only one who could save is the triune God himself, planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, 
and applied to us by the Spirit. And Christ accomplished that mission for us on Calvary. It was done. The one who came, born of woman and born under the law, had presented himself as a perfect sacrifice on Calvary's hill. And there he destroyed the power of the devil, of sin and death. He broke the back of it forever that we might be his, that we might belong to the Father. And all this is happening according to the one who is keeping the time. Every event in perfect time, in perfect place, by the one who sets the time. I don't know about you, but for me, it's really beginning to become clear that God the Father sets all the times. There is no contingent event in the presence of our God. He sets all the times. Listen to how he says it by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Now that's a sweeping statement. And that's the sweeping truth of God's sovereign providence over his creation and over our salvation. Not only does he set that kind of time, but he sets the number of our days. Many of you, I'm sure, remember Psalm 139. He says, David says, In that yet your eye saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book. The timekeeper's book. My days and your days, all of them are written in his book before one of them came to be. And again in Psalm 90, it says, The span of our life is threescore year and ten or fourscore if by reason of strength. How long are we going to live? We're going to live every day that God gives us. Every single day is a trust from our God. That's why our Lord says, Don't let your hearts be anxious. Don't be afraid. Today's troubles are sufficient for themselves. Trust in me. For days are numbered. Numbered by who? By our loving Heavenly Father. And so, I think the conclusion for me and for you ought to be that it's obvious that he sets the time for our full redemption. The time is set for our full redemption. That was a concern of the disciples on the Mount of Olives. They said to him, before he was about to ascend, will you this day restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replied, it's not for you to know the times and seasons set by the Father. It's not for you to know those. The Father has already set them. Then later in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, verse 31, it says this, For he, the Father, has set a day, set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The day is set when Christ will judge the world. It's already on the chart, and it cannot be changed. And of course, for us who want to know that day, Jesus reminds us very clearly in Matthew 24, you can't know it. 
He says to his disciples from the Mount of Olives in the, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only my Father who has said it. And then a very interesting verse, which stirs us to think about the implications for us, comes in Romans eleven twenty five. There, the Apostle Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant about this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Until the full number of people like you and me are in the kingdom. What I would even propose to you is that when you share the gospel with somebody, when you're used to lead somebody to Christ, you're moving the kingdom of Christ one day closer to his return when that full number is filled up. And when that number is filled up, the reconciliation totally and completely, which is ours, will come. First Thessalonians verse 4, verse 16, chapter 4. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air forever with him. The time set. The time is coming. So who is the timekeeper of all of history. I would propose to you very simply, it is our loving Heavenly Father who we can call Abba, Daddy, who is the timekeeper. So, considering the pandemic that we're in, considering the turbulence in our own national government, considering the, the moral state of our nation, considering the, the powers of the world that compete for dominance in one region or the other. With all that going on, let me ask you, what day is it? What day is it? The Apostle Paul tells us very clearly in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, quoting Isaiah chapter 29, 49, verse 8. In a time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. Then Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That's what today is. It is the day of salvation. On the chart, as we move towards Christ's return, this is the day of salvation. And that verse is quoted twice in the New Testament. And along with it comes the warning, when you hear that, don't harden your hearts. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, your heart's been hard for a long time, don't harden it. Open it up. If it's become temporarily hard, reopen it. Reopen it to the God in the day of salvation and he who is our inheritance will come in and eat and drink with us and be our very great reward. The Lord is at the master clock of all the universe. He is keeping the time. 
It is the day of salvation. And so that we might know those timeless days when we are forever with the Lord. Come to Christ. Refuse Him not. Throw your guilty soul on Him in repentance and receive His mercy and receive His grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the gospel percolate down to the very depths of our souls. May we be encouraged and refreshed with it. For Christ alone is the one who saves. Be exalted, Lord Jesus, in our midst and in our lives. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.